Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Gene Healy evaluates the new and improved cult of the presidency. Richard Trent critically examines Silent Spring after 50 years. David Stockman argues that the GOP has got to go. Matt Kibbe of FreedomWorks discusses the Tea Party movement. And Cato's David Bowes discusses the legacy of libertarian ideas and their champions. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If you listen to many prominent conservatives discussing the issue of uh, energy in the Obama administration, you would believe that there was an active war on oil, a war on coal in favor of energy sources like wind and solar being undertaken by the Obama administration. We're here to talk about that a little bit to uh, sort out fact and fiction. We're talking with Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Jerry Taylor, also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. So just to start here, uh, and I'll start with you, Jerry, what claims are many people making regarding what they believe to be an Obama administration-led war on, well, let's start with oil. Well, the claim is that the Obama administration is trying to shut down the oil sector. Barack Obama has a lot to do with those claims. After all, he's quite uh, outspoken about his desire to move away from conventional energy to clean energy. So he feeds into that a bit. But the reality is, is put attention aside, when it comes to actual public policy, the Obama administration has not done a great deal to throttle the oil sector. Oil production in the United States is 5.66 million barrels a day under this administration. It was 5 million barrels a day when he came in. Uh, on federal lands, production is indeed down last year. Republicans make a big deal of that, down 14%. But it's up 11% on federal lands over the course of the entire Obama administration. So last year was a decline essentially on uh, offshore wells. Onshore, federal oil production is up and not down. And the main reason we saw the decline in offshore oil had to do with the uh, repercussions from the Maconda spill in 2010. That showed up in data in 2011. So as that moratorium has come and gone, production levels are back up to more historic norms, and uh, I think you're going to see production uh, rise accordingly. Peter Van Doren? I think what people who study politics should remind our listeners is that politics always has two levels. One is the verbal, the discussion, the rhetoric that one hears amongst the supporters of an administration as well as the leader of that administration. And then there's reality, and they often differ. So President Reagan is often credited with something called leading the anti-abortion movement in the United States. And, but then if you watch, what actual policies did he actually give the anti-abortion movement? And the answer is not that much. And so it's certainly the case that President Obama's personal beliefs and the beliefs of his most ardent supporters are anti-coal and anti-oil, and they are pro-wind and pro solar and pro-alternative energy, and it's certainly the case that the administration has emphasized subsidies to those alternatives, and it's certainly the case that the rhetoric of Obama is anti-traditional. But if you look at actually what has happened, it's remarkable how little his base has gotten from him other than rhetoric. And it seems like basically you're talking about President Obama playing into his critics' criticisms. They seem to almost agree wholeheartedly in allowing this 
on reality to move forward. Well, sure. Barack Obama postures as the Cape Crusader for green energy. So he's happy to uh, allow a narrative to play out that he is an enemy of uh, oil and coal, at least with his base. He's not about to tell his most ardent supporters, hey, you're not really getting all the things you think you're getting. I mean, Yeah. And Republicans are in the business of uh, telling voters that if you elect Democrats, the world's going to come to an end. And when gasoline prices are as high as they are today, saying a re-election of President Obama means these high prices and even higher prices in the future is a winning political argument, at least so they hope. And there are numerous policies that are on the books that President Obama has done nothing to try to get rid of, that is, uh, at the very least, subsidies. Well, the, the Obama administration has, uh, has posed and, and enacted a tremendous amount of subsidy for the clean energy sector. But if you ask the question, what does Mitt Romney want to do about that? If you look at his energy plan, not a whole heck of a lot. For instance, he proposes, or at least a low-level campaign spokesman from Iowa argued that a Romney administration will let the production tax credit for wind energy disappear. Of course, Romney never said that. His energy policies and white papers don't make that claim. So let's assume the low-level campaign operative from Iowa is correct. Romney doesn't talk about letting the production tax credit for other renewables go away. He doesn't really have a whole lot of substance to say about uh, other subsidies. In fact, to the extent to which he's commented, he's in favor of them. He's in favor of the ethanol subsidies. He's in favor of clean coal subsidies. He's in favor of ridiculously large nuclear energy subsidies. The only reason they don't bite the taxpayer in the butt is that even with those subsidies, nobody on Wall Street was still willing to invest in nuclear power. So the subsidies have come to naught so far. So this idea that there's a big difference between the two candidates one candidate proposes mass subsidy and intervention and picking winners, and the other candidate proposes to leave the market alone. That's the way Mitt Romney would like you to believe this uh, debate is going. Is absolutely not true. Mitt Romney is fully embracing most of all the preferences, subsidies, and winner pickings that's been going on in this administration. Peter Van Doren. I think that's what's most distressing to both Jerry and I and to academic energy economists is how little political support there is in any elected official for actual free energy markets. No one believes in them except academics and think tank types like us because everyone, politicians are scared to death of voter reaction to the volatility of traditional fossil fuel prices and the reaction that the public has when that happens. And so to use an econ term, we're in this bad equilibrium where even if Jerry and I were running for office and we said we want, we're, we're for free energy markets, and then what we would find is the average middle class voter may rhetorically say they're for energy, free energy markets, but in fact, they are, when shocks hit, they want protection from those shocks through government policy. A great example, this is back in 2002, I believe it was. Our co-founder and longtime president, Ed Crane, co-authored an op-ed with the then executive director of the Sierra Club in the Washington Post calling for a zero energy subsidy policy, a free market energy policy that just lets the best fuel wins and gets rid of everyone's subsidies, preferences, mandates, and everything else, not even defined exotically. In other words, just straight up subsidies and preferences in the tax code, as well as direct expenditures. The Sierra Club not only was willing to sign on to that op-ed, but they were willing to lobby for a bill that would eliminate everybody's subsidies and let the best fuel win, including eliminating renewable energy subsidies. And at the time, their executive vice president, Dan Becker, came to me and says, can you help us do that? I said, look, Cato's not in a lobbying business. Good luck to you. My suggestion, however, is you talk to Jeff Flake in Arizona. He's probably the most free market uh, guy on the House side of the uh, aisle, and he'd probably be able to help. 
Well, I heard back from Dan Becker several months later, and he told us that uh, he couldn't even get Jeff Flake to sponsor a bill that would zero out everybody's energy subsidies. Somebody who is championed as being very fiscally conservative. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Flake is as near a libertarian as you're going to get outside of Ron Paul, and yet Jeff Flake would not even sponsor that bill. I was told by the Sierra Club they could, that Flake decided not to sponsor because he couldn't find a single Republican not one single Republican who would back that initiative. Now, it really says something when the Sierra Club is in favor of zeroing out everybody's energy subsidies, but nobody else in the Republican Party in elective office is. Again, I'll reiterate, we often blame elites and special interests for policy outcomes, but I'm a firm believer of that middle-class voters' sentiments and their views of the world really matter a lot to politicians because those are where the voters are and they affect elections. And in the end, what Jerry was describing was, in effect, two elite representatives of the different sides of the political spectrum in the United States, the Sierra Club and the Cato Institute, intellectually agreed to a bargain. And in effect, what Representative Flake was telling the two groups was, they have very little effect on what voters think, and I, in the end, am elected by voters, and so you need to change voters' minds about what how markets work, how they don't work, what protections government should provide and what they shouldn't. And in the end, as elected officials know, when gas prices go up a lot, people seem to want government to do something about it. In fact, that's a good explanation for why Cato Institution tries to do what it does. We, of course, will talk to elected officials and we'll testify and uh, we'll do our best to give them good information. But we don't believe for a second that a really smart paper by, say, Peter and myself calling for zeroing on energy subsidies is going to change anyone's votes on the Hill because we had them read it and they smacked their foreheads and say, gosh, this makes a lot of sense. The only way we're ever going to see policies like that is if we change public opinion. And that's why most of what we do at the Cato Institute is about waging and winning the war of ideas outside of Washington, because that's a necessary prerequisite for positive policy change. It's not sufficient, but it's necessary to get from here to there. And uh, unfortunately, I think largely because the party and the ideologues, which are most inclined to support free market policies across the board, can't seem to bring themselves to support free market policies and energy. I don't know how many conservatives you run into who will say, yeah, we shouldn't be picking winners, but we should subsidize clean coal, or we shouldn't be, pick, we shouldn't be uh, helping this industry or that industry, and we should be opposing crony capitalism. But yeah, let's have giant loans guarantees the nuclear power industry. I mean, there's just no end to it. It's stunning. to. I mean, the thread that runs through our work over the 15 years that we've been together is we're exceptional in that we argue Energy markets are not special. And when we encounter everyone else outside of our little world at Cato, everyone else, including free market Republicans, think energy markets are special, i.e. that means they're difficult and voters get mad about them and we need to do something about them. And we try to give them the intellectual ammunition that says they're not special. They do have certain characteristics that create unpleasantness, i.e. prices go up a lot when supplies change a little, and that's unpleasant. But the rule, the laws of supply and demand and uh, all of those things one learns in economics are not repealed in energy markets. They just create outcomes that are unpleasant. And the what we've tried to do for the last 15 years is to give people the intellectual ammunition to argue that um, even though you're feel like you ought to intervene in these markets to manipulate prices one way or the other. You really shouldn't because the harms you're going to create through that are, are great relative to the benefits. Let's talk a little bit about coal. 
as Jerry and I have talked before, I'm from Kentucky, and that's one of the chief criticisms that's leveled against President Obama is that he has undertaken, in a lot of people's words, a war on coal. We have comments from him in 2008 or 2007 addressing a group of supporters saying basically he would wanted to make it very expensive, if not prohibitively expensive, to create another coal-fired power plant in the United States. So what evidence do we have that this president has undertaken that war? Well, there's certainly been policies he's initiated that have been hostile to the coal sector. He tried to get a cap-and-trade bill passed through Congress, and that would have been expensive to the coal sector. He's initiated several regulations, which will have real and significant costs on the coal sector. But... But the reality is the uh, problems faced by the coal sector are far less a matter of EPA regulation or Obama regulatory initiatives than they are the fact that hydraulic fracking has delivered cheap natural gas prices upon the land and coal can't compete with them. That's the reason that uh, coal mines are occasionally in the newspaper for shutting down. That's the reason why you read stories in the newspaper about how a coal fire plant is retrofitting to natural gas. That's the reason nobody has any natural, excuse me, coal-fired power plants or on the drawing board for construction or very few of them anyway, it has to do with natural gas prices. The regulatory initiatives by the Obama administration are, in many cases, though not all cases, significantly problematic for the industry. But given where natural gas prices are, that's the number one problem. What bothers me about the present rhetoric out of the right and out of Mitt Romney is this belief that if we just elect Republicans and we rein in the EPA, we can save coal. No, you can't. The only way you're going to save coal is if either you strangle hydraulic fracking, (laughs) tax the heck out of it, or subsidize the living hell out of the coal sector. The Republicans cannot save coal unless they want to completely destroy energy markets. And so giving that kind of false promise to uh, coal miners, to people in the energy sector, I think not only does them a disservice, but it does the policy debate a disservice by telling fairy tales about energy markets that Republicans are rude the day they told. Natural gas prices now are around $3 per million BTUs for new coal-fired power plants to be cost-effective, given that they have much higher capital costs. than So in electricity production, you face a trade-off between the price of the fuel and the price of the capital stock necessary to burn that fuel. So the cheapest capital kinds of electricity plants are natural gas-fired plants, low capital, but their fuel costs can be higher sometimes. Now they're not. So now what you've got is a perfect storm for natural gas because the capital costs of the plants are low, the price of the fuel is low, and the rate of return calculations basically say that unless natural gas prices were above $9.60 per million BTUs, no one would ever just do a spreadsheet analysis and conclude that they ought to have a coal plant. Natural gas prices have never been above $9.60 per million BTUs on an annual basis ever in the United States. And they've only been above that level for eight months, and that was post-Katrina in the, in when the, the production in the Gulf was wiped out in, in 2005. So there's a quote that we have in our paper from the executive of American Electric Power, who's the, the largest coal-fired utility in the country, and it just says, the economics scream natural gas, and then that's for the foreseeable future. That's what's going to drive the reduction in coal production, not EPA regulation. Yeah, I think the big point is even if John McCain had won in 2008 and initiated none of the regulatory initiatives that have been initiated by Barack Obama, you wouldn't see virtually any difference in the coal sector today in the, in the power markets. You wouldn't see virtually any difference. 
simply because gas is doing the damage right now. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine and senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Jerry Taylor, also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more about this. This is interesting argument between essentially just you two and a whole lot of conservatives. <laughs> as I understand it, you can find out more about that at Cato.org. The GOP has got to go. That from Reagan administration budget director David Stockman at Cato Club 200 in September. Stockman argues that modern Republicans don't care much about rational military spending, ending or dramatically reducing transfer programs. And overall, they just don't seem to really care about reducing the size and scope of government. The Republican Party today is a federation of political gangs. It is not a coherent political party with an agenda that makes sense. And the four gangs are the neocons, the social cons, the just cons, and the tax cons. In short, the Republican Party has become a con job, and uh, it is organized for one purpose, and that is to reelect itself. And it's failing utterly in the true role of a conservative party in a modern democracy, which is to defend the free market. And obviously, after TARP and the auto bailout, it's hard to say Republicans did that. It's to defend sound money. And after Greenspan and Bernanke and all the rest of it, it's hard to say they've done that. The job of the conservative party is to promote fiscal rectitude And after the massive deficits of many Republican administrations, it's hard to say that. And the job of the uh, conservative party is to promote private liberty. We know the answer to that. And keep the state chained and contained. And we know the answer to that. I'll give you one number that I find striking. And that is, in constant dollars, the budget of the United States during the eight years of Bush went from 2.2 to 3.2 trillion. It rose by $1 trillion in constant current purchasing power. And the reason I bring that up is that back in 1968, when Lyndon Johnson was totally out of control and running his famous guns and butter budget, the entire budget that was going to be the end of Western civilization as far as Republican orators knew in those days was only $1 trillion in today's purchasing power. And so what I'm saying is, in the eight years of the Bush administration, in which part of it they controlled Congress, they increased the budget of the United States more than the whole budget that Lyndon Johnson left to Nixon in 1968. So the point is, none of the jobs are being done that a conservative party is supposed to do. The neocons, I uh, think they've reached the point of almost unspeakable warmongering. There is no other way to say it. After all, they talk about the axis of evil in Iran, but I say no, it's the axis of medieval. They talk about the menace of the mullahs, and that's a problem for the people who live there. It is not a problem for the people who live here. They talk about the tantrums of the trained monkey that they send to the UN every year, and fortunately he's in his last term and will be gone. But that isn't a threat to the national security of the United States. 
The fact that you have 3,000 centrifuges running at Nantans and at Forda, watched day and night by UN inspectors who are there, means that they're making uranium gas, they're not making bombs. And so therefore, to believe that we're at the cusp of where we have to draw a red line and start another utterly unnecessary war because we can and because of this huge warmongering that goes on seems to me beyond the pale, but that's where the Republican Party is today. That's where the advisors to this candidate are today. Take the social cons. I only have two words for that and we don't have to say any more by that the social conservatives and all those issues. The two words are Missouri and Arizona. And when you, how can the conservative party ever get elected? How can it do its job? How can it win a sustainable majority when it behaves on those issues as symbolized by this lunatic candidate that we have in Missouri and by these nutty anti-immigration laws that are being pushed, were adopted in Arizona and being pushed uh, all around the country. What are they thinking? This country was built on free entry and we should get back to it. We don't need to be building walls. We need to be welcoming people who want to come here to work. And as long as the Republican Party is on this social con bit, they will limit the party's ability to appeal to the electorate and they will basically be distracted and wasted the time of Republican governments when they do get elected on issues that really are not part of governance. Now the third part of the gang is the just cons, and by that I mean, you know, people who stand around waving their arms about big government and about spending out of control and about deficits and the national debt and so forth, but when you look at the record, almost nothing is done about it. No hard choices are made, even by the rank and file of the Republicans. The big problem is symbolized by the Ryan budget, which people give a lot of credit to, but here's the problem. The heart of the welfare state is Social Security and Medicare. It's 1.4 trillion. It's a bad program because it's universal. It's a bad program because it's based on a regressive payroll tax that raises the cost of labor in the United States unduly when we can't compete in the world as it is. And yet, if you look at the Ryan budget, it gives a pass to Social Security forever. And despite all the political controversy going on, it doesn't take a dime out of Medicare till 2023. And how are we gonna get that far down the road if we keep borrowing a trillion dollars a year. Now the point is, it's backfired on them, even if they're trying to reform it 10 years from now, because they're not going after the right thing. And the right thing is to means test heavily these programs, and say that the affluent retirees are gonna to have to pay bigger premiums, that the affluent retirees are gonna have their benefits cut back or eliminated entirely. There's 55 million people receiving Social Security and Medicare today, and there's 10 or 15 million of them who basically don't need the benefits, and I don't care if you paid the payroll tax or not, this isn't an actuarially sound system, this is just a trust fund gimmick. 
they need to be means tested heavily and reduced or eliminated from the program. Now, if you were doing that, you would have Obama saying, I want the rich people to get their social security. That's a much harder argument to make than saying we're going to voucherize Medicare and you're all going to lose it. So I'm saying that on the core of the welfare state, which is the heart of the problem, the just con party is basically taking a powder. They're not facing down the issue and they're not being smart about it, which would be to fight for a severe and immediate means test in order to reduce uh, spending and the overall contribution to the deficit. Now, the point is that if they can't cut little things like farm subsidies or student loan interest rates, or if they're unwilling to take on the big things like social insurance, then how can we say that this is the conservative party fiscally? We can't. They're giving fiscal rectitude a bad name. They're basically saying 1.4 trillion of social insurance off limits. 700 billion worth of defense and national security spending, let's raise it. 50 billion worth of homeland security, much of which is wasted and unnecessary, keep it going. So the point is there isn't any kind of real policy position coming out of this gang of four that's going to make any difference. And then finally, we have the tax cons, and I'm sure that my position is uh, controversial on this, but I learned the hard way that starve the beast doesn't work. It hasn't worked for 30 years. You could try it for a year or two, but after five and 10 and 20 years, after many legislative seasons, if you don't have a corporal's guard to dramatically shrink the spending side of the budget, then you haven't starved the beast. You've simply punished the next generation by putting on their back massive debts that are totally inappropriate and frankly immoral. So starve the beast hasn't worked. Sooner or later, the answer is pay your bills. And frankly, I think if the American people had to pay the bills of government, they might wake up and start electing people who would want to do something about cutting spending in order to get tax relief. Republicans won big in 2010 with the help of the Tea Party movement, but the Tea Party takeover of the GOP is far from complete. That from Matt Kibbe, the president and CEO of FreedomWorks. He believes that many of the old rules of politics of activating freedom-loving voters have changed. He discussed the future of the freedom agenda in electoral politics at the Cato Institute in September. This book is about what I consider, from just from a political science perspective, perhaps the most exciting and monumental clash, certainly in my lifetime, because you have all of these forces of disintermediation, all these forces of decentralization, multiple sources of information online, ability to connect with each other. We now get to vote thumbs up or thumbs down on whether or not you like Justin Bieber's latest haircut. That's power. That's real power. We get to decide for ourselves when, where, how we get information in our RSS feed. We get to buy things that we never got to buy before, what's been called the long tail on the internet, 
even people with my bizarre tastes in music and literature, in one click, I can buy an original copy of Hayek's Road to Serfdom and the entire collected works of the Grateful Dead 1972 tour. That's what freedom is all about right there. And you have this disintermediation. Everything in our lives, it seems, is more about us. It's more about the choices we make. We are utterly liberated from the old mothership corporations that used to hire us at age 21 all the way until we got that gold-plated watch. And we were dependent on their underfunded pension system. It's not like that anymore. You go to monster.com. You don't like your boss? You think he's a jackass? You, in minutes, can find other options. It's a very competitive environment. It's very empowering. And this is true in almost every aspect of our lives, except when it comes to this town, except when it comes to politics. My friends, uh, Nick Gillespie and Matt Welsh, called the Republican and Democratic parties a duopoly, two very similar versions of the same thing. And it's certainly true when you think about all the institutions that are deciding and trying to decide for us what our health care is going to look like, what car we drive, every aspect for pushing us into one-size-fits-all top-down systems. This, from a political science perspective, this is fascinating. And the theory of this book is that all of these liberating forces have empowered the shareholders in the American enterprise to now know what's going on inside of the walls of the buildings. We know what's going on inside of Russell. We know what's going on inside the Ways and Means Committee that used to be lined with lobbyists on the outside making those tweaks to that bill, those carve-outs to the latest tax bill that we as the citizens, we as the shareholders, didn't find out about for years. It was a done deal by the time that the rest of us figured out that we had been screwed by a dirty collusion between committee chairman and some crony capitalist, maybe a public sector union representative. It was always the insiders because they controlled the information, they controlled the conversation, and we in economics would call the rest of us rationally ignorant, right? And rationally ignorant simply means that you didn't have the time and the money to find out what these guys were doing to you. That's all changed. Think about it from a public choice perspective. All of the advantages of inside information, all of the advantages of hiring the best lobbyists in town to show up at Ways and Means has been diminished as we, as individuals, get that information in real time. A great example of this I talk about in the book is when Nancy Pelosi posted the Obama health care bill online, you had this fascinating decentralized process by which thousands, if not millions of people, started to parse a very complex piece of legislation, share that information, and by the time they got to the August town hall meetings, the guy at the microphone who had stood up and shared this information with, with millions of anonymous friends literally knew more than Arlen Specter did. Arlen Specter didn't know a, an ounce of what was in that bill, but his audience did. That's power. That's fundamentally different than anything we've seen in the past. So you have this clash. And those of you at the Cato Institute might recognize the following sort of quote that Frederick Hayek once asked. How is it possible that so many millions of people with their unique 
knowledge, their unique perspective, that knowledge of time and place, understanding what their families need, understanding what they're trying to accomplish in their lives. How is it that so many dispersed people come together in a market and create something that's better than themselves? He asked that question when he was trying to explain to John Maynard Keynes why it was that imaginary macroeconomic constructs such as aggregate demand couldn't supplant all of this knowledge creation from the bottom up. But when you listen to Barack Obama today, when he stands in such unfortunate timing, when he stands in front of the newly financed, constructed Solyndra facility, just two months before it goes bankrupt, and he stands there and says with a certitude that should disturb everybody, I know what's better. I got the smartest guys in the room together, and we are certain that this is the future of energy in America. This is the future of energy in the world. I know that green energy is the right thing to do because I talk to the smartest people at the Department of Energy, and they assure me that it's true. He said that to all of you. Hayek called this a fatal conceit, right? How could he know? Apply that same clash to political strategy. In Kentucky, the experts said that now Senator Rand Paul didn't have a chance, that all of the old rules of politics, including the support of the Republican establishment, the money, the endorsements, the name ID, that was the key. But something happened, right? Freedom happened. All of these people sharing a a set of values and a set of goals spontaneously organized to produce what has emerged in 2010, and I would argue to this day, one of the most potent get-out-the-vote machines in the history of the United States. Nobody directed it. There was no central committee that said, now we shift from protesting to get out the vote. You Tea Partiers, did anyone send you that memo? No. You said to yourself, what do we need to do next? And you started talking to your neighbors, and you started talking to your Facebook friends, and you started organizing, you started getting the tools you needed to figure out how to do something that you've probably never done before. Many observers have rightly criticized the cult of the presidency in the era of George W. Bush, but Barack Obama has inspired a cult of the presidency like never before. At Cato Club 200, held in September, Gene Healy discussed the growth of the executive branch in the age of Obama. During the last election cycle, uh, Cato published my first book, The Cult of the Presidency. It wasn't the world's most cheerful book. I sometimes thought about calling it The Futility of Hope. (laughs) But the basic argument in The Cult of the Presidency was that for too long, Americans had looked to the president to do far too much. The framers of our Constitution never thought of the president as America's national guardian angel. He wasn't supposed to heal the sick, teach your children well, or democratize the world. He was mostly there uh, to play a defensive role, to uh, take care that the laws were faithfully executed and slap Congress back with the occasional veto when it got past its constitutional bounds. The framers saw the president as a constitutional officer with an important but a limited job. Early presidents did not go around calling themselves everybody's commander-in-chief. 
The Federalist Papers use a more modest term. They often refer to the president as the chief magistrate. And that's uh, how Washington referred to the office that he held. But as you know, the modern president is vastly different from that sort of animal. He is vast. He contains multitudes. He's America's shrink and our social worker and our national talk show host. He's a guide to the perplexed, a friend to the downtrodden. He's your buddy and your life coach, and he's also the supreme warlord of the earth. <laughs> well, how did this happen? How did we get from a humble chief magistrate to uh, what we have today, this constitutional monstrosity that promises everything and guarantees nothing except for public frustration and the steady growth of state power? Well, in the cult of the presidency, I argued that it's our own damned fault. The Pogo Principle, we have met the enemy and he is us. The expectations that Americans place on the office, the hopes and dreams that we invest in it, virtually guarantee an unhealthy concentration of power in the executive branch. We built this. Well, we didn't. You know, we're okay. We're too smart to look to professional politicians for miracles, but those other idiots out there, it's their fault. Now. Over the last couple of years, when people ask me, are you going to write another book, I would usually say, no, I can just update uh, every four to eight years uh, new details on whatever fresh hell the next president has delivered us into. And I was kidding, but it turns out that the joke was on me because, like Michael Corleone says, every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. <laughs> Turns out that Barack Obama is the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to uh, presidential cults. When Obama ascended to office, he had big dreams and vast plans. He promised to end the age of oil, to stop the ocean's rise, to deliver a complete transformation of our economy, provide a cure for cancer in our time. These are all quotes. And fundamentally change the way Washington works. How's that working out? But as Obama made clear early on, he sweats the small stuff too. In the early days of his presidency, he was like an infomercial host with nuclear weapons. He went on TV to, to tell uh, Americans that the days of hidden credit card fees are over. There's never been a better time to refinance your mortgage. He was gonna give you cash on the barrel for your old car. And he would even stand behind the warranty on your new Ford Fiesta. You're not going to pay a lot for this muffler. POTUS commands it. He even took time out from uh, two wars and a financial crisis to have himself, on the first day of school in 2009, piped into public school classrooms all across America so he could tell the children to uh, stand up for kids that are being teased and wash your hands a lot. Well, as hard as it may be to picture in this era where you can't get away from the president when the president never shuts up, this was not what the framers had in mind. They didn't believe, they didn't know the concept of the bully pulpit, and they believed that too much speechifying on the part of the president was a sign of demagoguery. They mostly wanted the president to mind his business and keep his hands to himself. Jefferson famously thought that it was too much for the president even to deliver the State of the Union address in person before Congress. It was 
like the king's speech from the throne. So he put an end to that practice until Woodrow Wilson revived it. Early presidents gave only a handful, you know, two, three, four speeches a year. In his first year, Obama clocked over 900 speeches and 265 interviews. Rachel Carson is credited with launching the modern environmental movement with her book, Silent Spring. But the book has many problems for its science. Richard Tren, a founder and director of Africa Fighting Malaria, evaluated the legacy of Silent Spring at the Cato Institute in September. One of the most controversial and seemingly endless debates in environmentalism is the role of DDT and the role of public health insecticides in general in disease control programs. Every time anybody makes the point about the value of DDT in disease control, letters to the editor start streaming in and the blogosphere comes irate with irate posts, often with some outrageous and often ad hominem attacks against people like me and my colleagues. While the actors involved have changed and have certainly increased in number, the arguments, however, have not changed that much. And many of the same arguments that are found in Silent Spring we see repeated again and again now. It's first of all important to make the point that Rachel Carson in Silent Spring did not call for DDT to be banned. It's something that did happen 10 years after her book was published. But the way in which she denigrated the use of DDT and made some pretty anodyne comments about the use of DDT in public health was a smart tactic. It allowed her to dress up her anti-DDT campaign as real concern over public health programs. And I'll explain what I mean in a bit. It's also important to know that Rachel Carson really stands apart from people like William Vogt and Paul Ehrlich in the population control movement in that she didn't directly call for DDT to be banned because it was so good in saving lives. They did. I mean, they really set a new standard in, in callousness in directly advocating against the use of any life-saving technologies in poor countries because it would, in their view, lead to population growth, which for them was a real problem. Carson was dismissive about the importance of DDT in public health programs, but she really, we can't find the same callous disregard for human life that you get from someone like Paul Ehrlich. But while Carson was working on Silent Spring, and long before that, DDT was being used, and using quite large, large quantities in the United States in disease control programs. And it's inconceivable that she didn't know about the use of DDT in this way. And, and to be clear, what we're talking about is in public health use is the spraying of small amounts of quantities of this insecticide inside houses, not the aerial spraying in large quantities. Put away that great image from North by Northwest where Cary Grant is running through the field trying to be killed by the crop sprayer. That's not what we're talking about now. I'm not quite sure what they thought they were going to achieve. They are going to drown him in DDT or something. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. In our chapter, we provide data on the use of public health in the United States and around the world. Let's give you a few examples. Between July 1947 and December 1949, over 4.65 uh, million houses in the southern states of the United States were sprayed with DDT inside to control malaria and protect people against Anopheles mosquitoes. Over a five-year period, that program reduced the burden of malaria in the United States by over 90%. But malaria wasn't the only disease that it was being used against. In 1946 alone, 450,000 houses were sprayed to control murine typhus spread by fleas. DDT was also used to control house flies that spread dysentery. And up until 1969, the CDC 
use DDT to control urban yellow fever and, and dengue. Now, all these diseases were controlled or either eliminated by use of DDT. And of course, it wasn't just in the United States. The most famous uses of it uh, around the world, DDT use did eradicate malaria from the US, from Europe, from island states like Taiwan. But it was in countries like Latin America, India, large parts of Africa, uh, Sri Lanka, that DDT was most used most dramatically, almost eliminating malaria in some cases. And it was this use that led to the, uh, the global malaria eradication campaign in 1955, led by the World Health Organization and paid in very large part by the United States. Now, ultimately, eradication of malaria was not achieved. It's still a disease that has been battled. And so because of that, many people characterized this program as a terrible failure. Well, in that it didn't eradicate the disease, it did fail, but consider that during that period, a billion lives were saved, primarily through the use of DDT. And by any other measure, this is an astonishing success. Now, none of this kind of escaped Rachel Carson's attention. But for the most part, she just ignores these beneficial uses of the insecticide. There's an apparent contradiction of libertarian thinking that the ideas of our founding fathers were radical and that those same ideas are deeply rooted in Western civilization. David Bowes at Cato University held this summer traces some of the history of those ideas that helped change the world for the better. In his wonderful book, Radicals for Capitalism, The History of the Libertarian Movement, Brian Doherty advances two ideas that might seem contradictory. First, he says... Libertarian ideas are radical. They go to the root. They ask the fundamental questions. Second, he says, these ideas are deeply rooted in Western civilization, which now runs on approximately libertarian principles. Now, that's an interesting challenge. Can you believe these are the most radical ideas in the political sphere and they are deeply rooted in Western civilization which now runs on those principles. And I think you can. I think you can say these ideas of individualism, individual autonomy, individual rights, civil society, markets, the rule of law, the bringing of power under the rule of law, these are radical ideas, perhaps the most radical ideas in human history, since after all, human history started with people taking what they could get and hitting people over the head. These ideas, a few centuries ago, revolutionized the world. Now, as he said, they're deeply rooted in Western civilization. They go back a long time. In Libertarianism, a Primer, and in many deeper books, the roots of these ideas in Judeo-Christianity, in the Greek and the Roman and the German roots of Western civilization, you can trace the beginnings of these ideas. But a couple hundred years ago, when they congealed into liberalism, they changed the world. They revolutionized first Northern Europe, and then the American colonies, and then most of Europe, and increasingly much of the world. And libertarians have been involved in that struggle, the struggle for liberal values, all that time. And that is a record to be proud of. We have been fighting 
ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries. That is a record to be proud of and a record to build on. The New York Times did a review of Brian Doherty's book, and they tried to nitpick everything in it. And I wrote a response going through some of them. What did they come up with? They said, he doesn't talk about all the libertarians who haven't had much respect for the rights of others. Really? Who are those? Well, how about Ayn Rand? She testified before the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee about communists in Hollywood. Well, that is rich, coming from a newspaper that won a Pulitzer Prize for Walter Durante's lies about Stalin's terror famine in Ukraine, and where Herbert Matthews was the press agent who helped Fidel Castro come to power in Cuba. For them to criticize one libertarian testifying before HUAC. And what did she say? She said, there are communist writers in Hollywood, and they put communist ideas in movies, and they're not always as obvious as you might think they would be, and you should not censor them. That's not the way you deal with bad ideas. That's what she said. Now, the New York Times also said Murray Rothbard supported Strom Thurmond in 1948 for president when he was 22. Okay, that is embarrassing. <laughs> and all those whose friends and forebears did not support the pro-Soviet candidate Henry Wallace that year are entitled to criticize. That would not include most of the people at the New York Times. And then they said... And Milton Friedman was an advisor to the Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet. Well, yes, that's true. He spent 45 minutes with him once, and I think he wrote him a letter also. He spent a lot more time than that with the dictators of China, giving them advice on how to improve their, improve their economy. Now, what would the Times have Milton Friedman do when a dictator asks for advice on reducing the misery under which his people suffer? Should he say no? I prefer that your people continue to suffer under the misery of inflation and stagnant economies? I don't think so. He suggested you could improve the lives of the people of Chile if you did these things. And that's what he did. And in fact, this one military junta did take a lot of his advice, and Chile became the fastest growing, most prosperous economy in Latin America. And then the New York Times said in this review of Brian Doherty, and there was a guy who was an anti-Semite. And as I wrote in my response, despite having spent 30 years in the libertarian movement, and despite having read this book, I had never heard the name of the anti-Semite that he mentioned. So I went back, used the index, flipped through the book, found the name of the guy. Oh, yes, it's this guy of whom Leonard Reed, one of the real founding fathers of libertarianism, Leonard Reed said, stay away from this guy, he's an anti-Semite. So, okay, yeah, there was an anti-Semite somewhere around the libertarian movement, and one of the leaders said, you should stay away from this guy. So if that is the sum total of embarrassing libertarian moments, it's a pretty darn good record over 70 years or so. Modern liberals have to deal with the fact, not an embarrassing fact, but a shameful one, that many of their forebears supported Stalin and the Communist Party. As for conservatives, I could mention their long resistance to liberty and equality under the law for blacks, women, and gays, but instead I'll just say George W. Bush and the Iraq War. 
In 70 years, libertarians have done nothing that remotely compares to expressing support for limited constitutional government while also supporting Bush, his disastrous war, and his accumulation of unaccountable, unprecedented presidential power. That is a record to be proud of and a record to continue fighting for. And I want to send you all away from here inspired to go and fight for freedom. And sometimes the task of doing that seems overwhelming. But let me take a moment to tell you about some people who took on a far more terrible state than our own. This story starts about 30 years ago. And I always wonder for the youngest people in the audience, how much of the backstory do I need to tell? Once upon a time, the world was divided by an iron curtain into a more or less free world and a completely unfree world, the world of the Soviet Union and communist China. And in 1978, as part of the Cold War, the United States decided it should place nuclear weapons in Europe. And understandably, the communists in Central Europe and Eastern Europe didn't like this idea. And the East German communists encouraged their people to protest. They were very big on protest in East Germany. If you wanted to come out and protest against the United States, you could do that. So they wanted to encourage protests, and people did come out, and they marched. No nuclear weapons in Europe. But some of these people started talking about peace and what it meant. And a small peace movement grew up based in the remaining Protestant churches, which were attended mostly by old women. But there were a few Protestant churches, Lutheran churches still there. And some people started going to these churches and praying for peace. And they prayed against nuclear weapons in Europe. But they also started praying against mandatory army service in East Germany and against military classes that their children had to attend in grade school. And that was not what the East German government had in mind, and they started watching and persecuting these activists. But there was still a little bit of protection for the church. They would not go inside the church to break these things up. And over the next few years, people started organizing Monday evening prayers for peace at St. Nicholas Church, Nikolai Kirka, in Leipzig, the second largest city in East Germany the church where Martin Luther once preached against power and corruption and autocracy. And under constant pressure from the East German state, attendance shrank to fewer than 10 regulars by the mid-1980s, but it was the only place you could express any dissent, and slowly attendance started to grow. And then Gorbachev's reforms gave people some optimism that maybe there was going to be some space and some openness. And so people were attending the Monday evening peace prayers. By 1989, the agents of the Stasi were monitoring nearly 200 separate citizens groups. Also, the regime never managed to block West German television broadcasts. So young people wanted the lives they saw on television from the West. In 1987, hundreds of teens gathered in Berlin chanting, the wall must go because they wanted to attend a David Bowie concert. <laughs> American conservatives who used to complain about sex, drugs, and rock and roll didn't realize that rock and roll might end up having more influence on the other side of the Iron Curtain than it did here. 
So on May 7, 1989, they had local elections in East Germany. Now, we in the West knew that elections in the communist countries were a complete farce. 99% of the people turned out to vote, and 99% of them voted for the Communist Party. And in East Germany, people were told that's, that's what an election is. That's what happened. We knew it was fraudulent, but a lot of them maybe didn't. And so coming out of these churches, some people said, let's be election observers. We'll volunteer to go out and, and watch the voting, and we'll come back to the church at night and compare the results. And they discovered there appeared to have been fraud. Not that many people voted. Some people said they didn't vote for the Communist Party. So they, they became aware there's something wrong here. And then the summer of 1989, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square was a reminder to people in Germany of what communist states can do when they're provoked. And there was no precedent for a peaceful transfer of power in the communist world. And the minister of the Nikolai Kirka, looking back on this a few years later, said it wasn't imaginable that the communist state would end. And fear of a Chinese solution grew among people, a crackdown. But Gorbachev continued to send signals that the Soviet Union would no longer intervene in domestic politics in their client states. And so maybe there was some space. And that summer, 1989, Hungary relaxed its border restrictions in the summer. They allowed you to cross from Hungary to Austria. And thousands of Germans who were vacationing in Hungary, because it was also behind the Iron Curtain, discovered you could drive across the border to Austria, a German-speaking country where you could say anything you wanted to. Other East Germans went to Prague and somehow picked Prague as the place where they would climb over the fence of the West German embassy, putting themselves legally onto West German territory. And after a summer break, all this stuff is going on. People are thinking, instead of 10 people or 100 people, thousands of people showed up at the Nikolai Kirka on Monday, September 4th, 1989. And I must say, I was around. I was listening, watching the TV. We didn't know what was happening. We knew, we read on page 13, that there were these protests going on in the church in Germany. We knew that the Hungarian border had been opened. It, I can remember it was a story this big. But we didn't know what was about to happen. Thousands of people showed up. A few days later, in front of Western TV cameras that had come to Leipzig for a trade show, young protesters unfurled a banner demanding freedom of travel. The minister remembers that the Stasi ripped it down and tackled the kids. And millions of East Germans saw that on West German TV. And a week later, in the St. Nicholas Church, the crowd doubled. And in response to the people leaving through Hungary and Prague, these people chanted, Wir bleiben hier. We're staying here. Monday demonstrations began to be held at Lutheran churches all across East Germany. The next Monday night, 15,000 people marched in Leipzig. They were pouring out of the church and marching around the ring road that circles the inner city of Leipzig. They were carrying candles, marching for peace. And on October 9th, the police knew things were getting bigger and they prepared to deal with 20,000 
protesters, unprecedented in the Soviet empire. But as the crowd poured out of the church, and I've been in that church, there weren't very many people inside the church, so when they say the crowd poured out of the church, they mean and out of all the squares nearby. As the crowd poured out of the church and began to march around the ring road, more than 70,000 Leipzigers joined this demonstration. And the minister looking back on it recalls, this was 70,000 people who didn't know if they'd come home intact or see their families again. It was a heroic and enormous act of moral courage. And slowly the crowd began walking around Leipzig's Ring Road, and the police looked for orders. And they looked to their captains, and the captains looked to the telephone, and no orders came. And the police backed off. They let the people march. And that was the end of communism in East Germany, although nobody knew it that night. The next week on October 16th, 150,000 people marched. The week after that, it was 300,000 as people came from all over East Germany to march in Leipzig. And the party leadership fell, not the party state, but the leaders of the party fell. They no longer had support. And on Saturday, November 4th, more than 500,000 people marched, not in Leipzig, but in East Berlin. And five days later, the Berlin Wall, the wall that was a permanent part of my childhood and young adulthood, the wall built to keep people in, was opened, sort of by accident, because they didn't realize what was going on. And millions of people were suddenly, amazingly, free. And a few years later, I had the honor to meet Wolfgang Tiefensee, who had been active in those protests, who had been the mayor of Leipzig and was by then a member of the German cabinet. He told me he'd been mayor of Leipzig, and I said to him, were you involved in the protests? And he said, oh yes. From September 1989, and I hope you know what the Bible tells us, we walked seven times around the city, and then the wall came down. Seven times from September until November 1989. And the minister of an East Berlin church who was involved in this whole process looks back on the events and says, no outside force could have done this. That would have meant war. What happened was a self-liberation. Soft water breaks the hardest stone. There is no army, no state, no government program that is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. But it's up to people to make the idea's time come. I was asked once by some skeptics of libertarianism what the most important libertarian accomplishment ever was. And I thought for a moment and said the abolition of slavery. Okay, they said, what else? I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. <laughs> But they said, name another one. So I thought a little more carefully and said, bringing power under the rule of law. That is the fundamental liberal or libertarian accomplishment. It was a revolutionary achievement. It revolutionized the world, but it remains incomplete. It's what the protesters in 1989 fought for. 
It's what Mao Yuxi and Chen Guangchang and thousands of other Chinese protesters fight for today. It is what we fight for. Thank you for being part of that historic and ongoing struggle. Since the Mexican government initiated a military offensive against the country's powerful drug cartels in 2006, more than 50,000 people have died and the drugs continue to flow. In his new book, The Fire Next Door, Ted Galen Carpenter details the growing horror in Mexico and argues that the only effective strategy is for the U.S. to abandon its failed drug prohibition policy, eliminating the lucrative black market premium and greatly reducing the financial resources of drug cartels. You can order your copy of the book at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.